invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you here, it should be on page 737. We'll be beginning uh, today a new series uh, through uh, this wonderful prophet Daniel. And I want to give just a few uh, introductory remarks uh, before we pray and before we read uh, chapter 1. And so I'll give you a moment to turn there before uh, stating uh, these two introductory remarks. So as you uh, turn there and notice, uh, the book of Daniel is 12 chapters, and it's divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 provide us with these historical court narratives, really exciting, some of the most uh, well-known Bible stories um, out there. Uh, And we find those in chapters 1 through 6 as Daniel and his friends um, exist and live and the Lord provides for them in the midst of a hostile city in Babylon and even in the most central location in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar uh, as well. And so chapters 1 through 6 provide us with these historical court narratives. Chapter 7 through 12 shifts to a kind of apocalyptic genre. It provides us with prophetic visions that Daniel is given, that he reveals to his church, and that these visions uh, bring us to understand not only Daniel's own day, but various kingdoms that are to rise, and ultimately leading up into our own day um, as well, as Daniel looks forward, not understanding all that he has seen, and being commanded then to seal up the vision until the day, and that day in which we find ourselves, Daniel's own visions, finding their uh, fulfillment. And so you have two uh, parts to this book. A historical part, chapters 1 through 6, with very exciting court narratives and stories, and then chapters 7 through 12, in which we find these prophetic visions. The second thing we want to see is that the book of Daniel as we see in chapter 1 and throughout this whole uh, book, instills in us and creates in us a genuinely God-centered outlook on the world. The book of Daniel provides us with a genuinely God-centered outlook or worldview, which is deeply needed in our day. We live in a day, and I mentioned this in the first service, but it just struck me last night that we live in a day in which in the midst of Times Square, as we look forward to a new year, the final song that we're going to put on our lips as a culture is, begins with, imagine there is no heaven. Imagine, and later on, there is no religion. We live in a godless age. Even as the psalmist says in Psalm 10, verse 4, regarding the wicked, all his thoughts are, there is no God. As we said earlier in the first service, they can imagine that. But the reality, as we're going to see, is that there is a God in heaven. And there is a God who is, who, to whom we owe all honor and praise. And we'll see that come out in the book of Daniel That everything that Daniel does, he does knowing that this is his father's world. That this is his God who ordains what is right as we have sung. In fact, Daniel's own name and names throughout the Old Testament, especially in the New, are significant. They're not just uh, meaningless sounds. The name Daniel literally means God is my judge. And we see throughout the stories here that Daniel recognizes that not King Nebuchadnezzar, but God is the one 
who will judge. And therefore, he entrusts himself to God to do what is right. And so um, the stories instill in us and create in us a deeply God-centered view of history, of the world, of our own lives, where everything is going. And so those are just two very brief comments uh, regarding the book of Daniel. We'll jump into it now, but before we read, let me pray, and then we'll hear uh, from God's word. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Father, we ask that your word would be for us the glasses through which we see all things, for only through it do we see things rightly. And so, Father, as we embark on this study of the book of Daniel, we ask, Lord, that you would instill in us a worldview in which you are at the center, you are on the throne, that you are establishing and have established your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as King upon your holy hill, and that he is the one to whom the nations must bow. And so, Father, may you give us such strength, such courage, then, as we live in your world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Daniel chapter 1, we'll read the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of of the time when the king had commanded that they be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the question that the Israelites faced as they were whisked away into exile, as the Babylonians swept in into Jerusalem as we had just read about, and brought away, exiled them into Babylon, the main question they were left with is, is the Lord still with us? Is the Lord still with us? In a foreign land, you think of the psalm, and I believe Psalm 137, you might have to correct me on that, where they're asked, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, in Babylon, the enemy of God's people? And so that's the question that Daniel is faced with and his friends are faced with as they are brought to Babylon. And it remains the question that the church asks as well as we exist in an evil age. As we exist as those and live in a day in which we have not yet arrived home, but we are still a people who are on the way, we do ask the question, is the Lord with us? That's the question we want to answer as we consider uh, this chapter. Is the Lord with us? And I want to think about three points here. They all start with C. First, the crown. Secondly, the challenge. And then thirdly, the Christ. The crown, the challenge, and the Christ. The text opens up by putting before us two kings of two cities, right? The king of Judah, namely King Jehoiakim, and King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And what we begin to see here is an age-old conflict happening. Jerusalem being the people of God, the city of God that he had founded, the place where he had established his king, King David, and his line whom he had promised that his reign would be forever. He would always have a son on the throne. On the other hand, though, you have Babylon, that ancient enemy, though new to the scene, but reflecting God, the ancient enemy against God's people. We see this, for example, that when King Nebuchadnezzar comes up and besieges Jerusalem and takes away the vessels in the house of God, the temple, it says that he brought them to the land of Shinar. It's very significant that Daniel reminds us and tells us this fact, that that Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels and brought them to the land of Shinar. It should bring uh, certain texts of the Old Testament to mind. So, for example, if you go back with me to Genesis chapter 10, we read of this same place. Genesis chapter 10, notice verse, first verse 10, then we'll jump to chapter 11. But Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. There, speaking about uh, the line of Nimrod, uh, who was a mighty hunter, one who defied the Lord. It said there in verse 10, The beginning of his, Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalni in the land of Shinar. And then if you jump to chapter 11, just flip a page. We begin to read of what's taking place in Shinar, in Babel. 
It says the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see, what we begin to see here now is is Babel reincarnated, in a sense. Babel reemerging, being rebuilt. A city of self-dependence, a city of autonomy, a a city in which you have kings who think themselves to be able to reach the heavens. The same age-old enemy, the opponent of God's kingdom, is here found in the rise of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, Babylon and Jerusalem represent the two cities to which all men and women belong. They symbolize the two loyalties of which scripture speaks in many different word pictures, two gates, two ways, two masters. As such, Babylon and Jerusalem are permanently opposed to one another, right? So Daniel brings us into this age-old conflict, a conflict that goes back to Genesis, even a conflict that goes back to Genesis 3, when the Lord placed enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, That same conflict Daniel is now brought into the midst of. He's brought onto the battlefield. And the question then that Daniel and all who were whisked away in exile had to ask is, is the Lord our King still with us? On the surface, it seems like he's abandoned them. Certainly, Nebuchadnezzar certainly could not overpower the Lord. His victory over Jerusalem could not be owing to the fact that he is stronger than their their Lord. And so as they are sent away into exile, the question is, is the Lord with us? Has he abandoned us? Which is why we have been defeated. And so Daniel then, as he notes in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem, Daniel instead provides us with the right answer. And Daniel provides us with the right perspective on this event that took place. Because Daniel recognizes that though Nebuchadnezzar himself may be ignorant of this fact, it was not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord who ultimately gave Israel into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Notice what verse 2 says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. All right, again, on the surface, it seems from, from a certain perspective that Nebuchadnezzar triumphed over Israel. And the fact that he takes the vessels from the temple and brings them into the, his own uh, temple was to be symbolic of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar's gods appeared to have defeated the God of Israel. They were stronger. They'd been conquered. But again, Daniel provides us with a God-centered understanding of this event, that it was ultimately the Lord himself who gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Daniel wants us to see that first, the Lord is the one who has done this, that the Lord will now go with them, and that it's not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord 
who is and truly wears the crown. It's the Lord who wears the crown. Throughout this narrative, Daniel presents the Lord as the one who is not reactive, but the one who is active, as the one who is giving. Verse 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah. Later in chapter 9, in the midst of the challenge that Daniel faces, we read again that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And then we read also in verse 17 that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. At every turn in the narrative, we read of the Lord giving. He gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He gave Daniel favor and compassion. He gave the, uh, him and his friends learning and skill in all literature. You see, Daniel provides us with a certain outlook on everything taking place as that which is not outside of the Lord's control, but under his sovereign plan. That this event takes place not in surprise, but ultimately according to the Lord's will. You might ask the question, how did Daniel, as he himself is experiencing this traumatic event, how did Daniel know that it was the Lord who had given the king into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Well, Daniel understood that God had spoken earlier and said that if his people continue in the hardness of heart and with their stiff necks, that he will be the one who will bring judgment against them. He prophesied that earlier through the prophet Isaiah. And he even told them long, long ago to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Long ago to Moses, he had said this, chapter 28, uh, verse 47. He says that, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyful and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. He goes on to say in verses 52, They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you, and so on. So even long ago, when God established his people, Israel as his nation, he had warned them and and told them that if they continue in their disobedience, if they continue in the hardness of heart, that he will ultimately send, he will be the one who will give them over into the hands of his enemies. And so Daniel then, as he sees this take place, he knows that it is ultimately the Lord who is sovereign over this situation, and it's the Lord who has given them. And despite the appearance of things as if he has been defeated, it is the Lord who still wears the crown. So Daniel provides this God-centered view of this event. And much more can be said about this, but we'll move on to our second point, the challenge. So first we saw the crown, but secondly, the challenge. As Daniel and his friends are brought into Babylon, they are re-educated, and they are made to, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar to forget their identity and to forget their God. We see this in a number of different places. Uh, first off, we see the fact that 
uh, he provides them with his portion. Notice it says that in verse, uh, verse, the end of verse 4, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And furthermore, the king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. And so, on the one hand, you have these Hebrew boys now brought into Babylon, and they begin being taught the literature and the, and the, um, and the language of the Chaldeans, that they might forget their God. He assigns them his daily portion in order that the comforts of life in Babylon might ease them away and, and lead them away from recognizing and being devoted to the Lord in a difficult place, right? Here is an easy way of living. Here is the king's portion that you might enjoy. And therefore, in the midst of this hostile, difficult place, why not give in? Why not compromise? Why not denounce the Lord and begin to be a Babylonian? Why remain faithful to the Lord when ease and comfort are offered to you? More than that, their names are changed. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. All of their names contain something in them that, that point to Israel's God. Daniel, Daniel, El being Elohim, meaning God. In Hananiah, Yah being Yahweh, right? All of their names meant something about their God. Elohim, Yahweh, who is God. And so their names are, from their names are struck any reference to their God and replaced with the names of the Babylonian gods of Bel and Nebo. And so all of these tactics are used in order that they might forget their God. And I think it's very wise, I think you've probably heard sermons on this or on this text a number of times, but I do think it is very wise as we recognize the tactics used here to also realize that they are the same tactics that are used against the church even in our own day. Not by the city of Babylon that has now fallen, but by the symbolic Babylon, the city of the world. The city of the world seeks isolation to separate God's people from public worship, from the, from the covenant community. And how many of us need to heed that and to recognize that it is not safe to separate ourselves and to isolate ourselves from the public worship of God, from the teaching of his word, from fellowship with the saints, and from knowing these things together. Right? If, we can, if you can remove a coal from the fire, right? the coal cools off and it just hardens up and it becomes easy to touch. Right? If you can just isolate. And so if you are isolated from the word of God and from the communion of the saints and from fellowship and from worship, right? it's no different than a coal being removed from the fire. And the fire and the passion and the love for the Lord dies out and withers away. And so it's the same tactics to burden our schedules, to busy us so that we might prioritize our lives so that the worship of God, the fellowship of the saints is not a priority. It's a tactic that the world often uses, isolation. You have indoctrination, of course. We see this in the schools. We see this all around us in the messages that are pushed before us to retrain our minds to think a certain way, which is why the Apostle Paul will say that we are to be, re- be renewed, we are to be changed, transformed by the renewal of our minds. What we think, how we think is important. 
And part of the Christian life then is having our minds renewed according to God's word. And being that being the lens through which we see that our worldview might not come from the world in which that, that says there is no God, but it might come from the word of God as a lens, as a glasses through which we see all things. And so we've spoken about this before, but right, this is one of the reasons Christian education is so significant and so important for our children. It's why catechizing our children are so important, but not only for our children, but for your mind as well. Daniel and his friends are young at this point, and so we see the immediate application for children, right? And, and that's important. And we need to be raising our children to know the Lord. But also we not, might, should not forget that we ourselves breathe in the air of this evil age. We ourselves hear these things and are, can be very easily deceived. And so we're to be on guard against compromising our minds with the lies and the deceits of the evil one. Also, the idea of compromise, right? We said earlier, Daniel was offered the king's portion. It was intended as, a, as something that was meant to provide him with an easy way of living, a comfortable life, a full belly, being satisfied. And these things are then given to, to appease and to please and to lure God's people away from the hard life that he has called us to, to the difficult things of living for Christ in this age. We live in a day in which convenience is king. Convenience is God. It's the idol that we worship. What we're willing to give up for convenience. And instead of that, we need to recognize that we are called as God's people to live for him no matter the consequences as we see Daniel doing here. Not to have a price that the world can purchase us, but instead to be fully devoted to the Lord. And then also the idea of confusion, right? changing their names, changing their identity, and the need for us instead to be reminded of our identity, of who we are as the people of God, as the church, and as those who belong to Christ and whose identity is found um, in him. So these are all the tactics right, we see taking place um, here as Daniel is faces this challenge in Babylon. But it's quite interesting that in the midst of all of these things, right, the, um, the changing of their names, uh, the, the learning of their literature and language, the, the education system, out of all of those things, the point that, da- that Daniel decides to um, resist Right? The place that Daniel desires, resolves not to defile himself has to do with the food that is given to him. It's kind of an odd thing if you think about it, right? He didn't say, I'm not reading these books. He didn't say, no, you have to call me Daniel. But he, he said, I will not defile myself with the king's portion. It's quite interesting. Why, why there? Why take your stand here? Why not somewhere else? Why take your stand on this, right? It says in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, a number of reasons have been given for why Daniel uh, thought that by eating the king's food, it would defile him. Uh, But most of those don't hold much water, at least they're, they're criticized from every angle. 
some of the dietary laws of the Old Testament aren't really made explicit here to think that that's the reason why. Maybe the food was mixed with blood as they cooked the food, and that's why Daniel didn't want it. But none of that is said here. Rather, just as the age-old conflict was seen earlier between Jerusalem and Babylon, so the age-long test Daniel is now facing. God's people are tested as to whether they will depend upon the Lord with food throughout the Bible. It's always food that, that, that they're tested with. It's why Paul later will say their God is their belly, right? Food has a powerful effect on us. And so Daniel is facing, in a sense, the same test that Israel had faced faced long ago in the wilderness. Notice in Exodus chapter 15 and 16. In chapter 16, Israel at this point has been brought out of Egypt, right, through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness on their way to Canaan, but they're not there yet, the promised land. And in the midst of the wilderness, God is testing his people as to whether they will depend entirely and wholly upon him. Will they believe that God is their provider? Will they believe that their source of strength is him? Will they believe, as Moses said, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord? Will they pass that test? And so notice in Exodus chapter 16, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather. So Moses said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you are, that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to fill, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And so we see here, right, Israel back in the wilderness was tested with their bellies, with the food that they were to eat. And they were to gather food each day, enough for one day alone, trusting that the Lord would provide the next day, the Lord would provide the day after, and that they would not begin to rely on their food reserves, but know that it was God who provided for them. And so fast forward now to Daniel, in a similar sense, brought out of the promised land, the opposite, opposite way. Right? He's no longer in the land flowing with milk and honey. That would be a land and what would produce abundantly for his people. Which the Lord said, once you're in there, don't forget that it's I who still provides you with everything. But now again, outside of the land, again, tested with food. And Daniel by, resolves himself here because he wants to make the point that it is not Nebuchadnezzar who is his beneficiary, right? The one who is giving them all of these great things to enjoy, providing him even with his own portion to enjoy. But instead, it is the Lord who is his provider. Daniel resolves that he will depend wholly upon the Lord in the land of Babylon. In the midst of the enemy, Daniel will not begin to secure his place 
by compromise, but instead he will secure his place as he looks to the Lord to provide for him. And so Daniel then provides for us a lesson that we too, in the midst of a land of darkness, in the midst of an age that is evil, as Paul describes it, that we too are to be a people who depend upon the Lord and live accordingly. A people who recognize that our portion comes from our King who is in heaven and not from those on earth. And Daniel, by recognizing then the King in heaven, by knowing that he is the one who sent them there, he is the one who is with them, providing and giving favor and wisdom to them, that he will then keep them. And this is what sets Daniel up for the rest of, and his friends up for the rest of the stories that are ahead of us in, in the book of Daniel. Right? They're able to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar and say, if we perish, we perish. Throw us into the flames. The Lord will provide. It's Daniel who can still kneel before the Lord in prayer, though it be illegal, and risk being thrown into the lion's den and itself being thrown in the lion's den because he knows the Lord is the one who is his ultimate judge and, his, and the one who provides. See, it's, it's at this early point that Daniel resolves and it affects the rest of his life. Daniel here is a, young, is a youth being sent into Babylon. The last statement in this chapter says that Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, King Cyrus is not the king of Babylon, but of Persia. See, Daniel outlasts King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it brings us into Daniel, likely into his 90s, and an entire life that began with saying, I will resolve that I will be dependent upon the Lord and him alone. He will provide, and therefore I will not compromise or defile myself. And that ought to be the resolve of all of God's people early on from the beginning, not delaying such a thing. Resolve that the Lord is my provider and resolve that I will not compromise on anything. And the Lord blesses Daniel, right? As Daniel says to the king's uh, chief of the eunuchs that he would prefer that he he be given, um, it says vegetables and water. Some translations have seeds and water. Not a huge uh, significance here. Uh, But Daniel, rather than eating the king's meats and wines, merely has seeds and water. At the end of the 10-day test, Daniel is shown to be fuller, fatter in flesh, as it says, better in appearance than all the other youths who ate the king's food. It's the Lord who is with them. It's the Lord providing uh, for them. And it concludes then by saying that for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature, that as they are there in Babylon, they become those who uh, become instruments and means by which God will show that his wisdom and his way of living Uh, surpasses and transcends the greatest wisdom that the world has. Nebuchadnezzar filled his courts with the wisest of all the nations he conquered. It's why he wanted these Israelite boys from Jerusalem, the royalty and the nobility. He wanted the cream of the crop from all the nations that they might serve him. They might boost his ego, be for his glory. And little does he know that by having those who know the wisdom of God and those who know his word, that he would be humbled, as we're going to see in later episodes. Um, episodes. 
We'll go with that. They're episodes um, in Daniel. And so we've seen the, uh, the crown. We've seen the challenge. One, will uh, we depend upon the Lord? And then finally, we want to think about the Christ, right? As Daniel had been uh, sent into exile, the question was, is the Lord with us? Is the Lord with us? And we might again, as we mentioned earlier, ask that same question. Is the Lord with us? And yes, we can say with full confidence that our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is with us. For he had said so in his own words. Matthew chapter 28. After he's been raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As the Lord was with Daniel, as the Lord went with his people into exile, providing for them, that by faith they might look to him and trust him. So we know that our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he went with Daniel, so he goes with us, now bearing our flesh in heaven. The very one who himself, who had endured the wilderness, think about his temptations before Satan, right, as he's brought into the wilderness. Satan tempts him with food. Satan tempts him with kingdoms, with power and recognition. And Christ himself triumphs there. So too, the one who has triumphed in the wilderness is with us. The one who has crushed Satan's head is with us. The one who did not grumble like the Israelites did, but the one who has succeeded is with us. And he is with us by his spirit, enabling us then to endure, enabling us to live for him and for his glory here in the present evil age. He enables us as citizens of heaven who await a savior to live and not compromise. He enables us to sing the Lord's song even as we are not yet home in the Lord's house. Our Lord is with us. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered death and hell and the wilderness temptations is the one who is with us. Is he, before his incarnation, who was with Daniel? It was he who went before his people. And now he goes before us as one again who bears our flesh in heaven. And so as we come to a conclusion here and think about a new year ahead of us, as we think about many unknowns, as we think about the trials and tests that we face, the enemies all around us, let us resolve, like Daniel, in the spirit and power of Christ, to live for the kingdom of God and not to, to find ourselves living with the value system of the city of man, the kingdoms of men, but instead having the values of the kingdom of heaven because that is where Christ, who is our king, is. And just as Israel was tested in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, so too the church today, as those who are tested that whether or not we will trust the Lord, whether or not that we will live by every word that comes from his mouth, that is what we are tested every day. And every day we are to resolve that we will not defile ourselves, but the Lord will be our portion, come what may. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you 
for your word, having it recorded for our good, that we might learn. And Father, as we uh, think about the ways in which you provided for Daniel, as he found himself in a hostile city, in a dangerous palace, Lord, yet he resolved knowing that it was safer to trust you than to put his trust in princes, whether Nebuchadnezzar or others. And so, Father, may we also be those who trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to know that he will provide for us in everything. And therefore, may we then resolve ourselves to live for him and for his kingdom as he leads us to our heavenly home. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.